This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 107 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest today is Martijn Grauten. He's editor at Virus Bulletin, an online forum for sharing the latest cybersecurity research and intelligence, which dates back to 1989. They're also an independent testing and certification body, and they hold a popular international security conference annually. Our conversation spans a range of topics, including the evolution of threats that Martijn has tracked over the past several decades, the current state of malicious email campaigns, why he believes some organizations overstate the potential impact of nation-state attacks, his thoughts on threat intelligence, and his recommendations for how organizations can best protect themselves. Stay with us. always been slightly geeky but uh, what I did after school was uh, go to university to study mathematics and that was the thing I really enjoyed at school and, and also really enjoyed at university and it was the sort of thing that I thought I would be doing for the rest of my life in some kind of research position. Um, I became a researcher after university, was writing a PhD thesis and then life happened as it sometimes does <laughs> and I still I, I never finished the PhD. Um, I, I, I will not be able to finish it, even if I tried now. Um, well, it was actually a great life lesson. And I, I somehow found myself in need for a job with with not much practical experience. And I found this small UK company that was looking for someone through their website. And I applied and they hired me. And that was Virus Bulletin. And that's how I joined the industry uh, 12 years ago now. And so what were your responsibilities when you first started there? Just making sure the website kept up, was being updated, the, the back end was maintained. Uh, there wasn't there wasn't any particular security part of that role other than general security that, that comes with maintaining a website. And what was the, the state of the industry back then, what, 12 years ago or so? So Virus Bulletin has always been quite embedded in the antivirus part of the industry. So that was where... Uh, that was the part of the industry that I got first exposed to. And the industry was basically going through a transition where uh, people had to explain to the general audience that the the virus writers, they were not, or the malware writers as it became called then, and they were not just kids in their bedroom uh, playing around doing funny things, as had been happening in in, in the late 90s, but they were actually criminals. And, And this was well before... Nation, well, nation states were active then, but very few people talked about this. There was not much known about this. That, that, that only started a few years later. What's the evolution been? What are the things that you've tracked over the past decade or so? Um, there's been an increased uh, focus on nation states, that, that, that nation states, that, that they play a prominent role to the point that maybe we overstate them a bit and we should probably focus more on ordinary criminal groups, but they too have evolved in, 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 a, in a number of ways. What do you mean by that? What, what, uh, when you say that we overemphasize the nation states, why, why do you say that? I think that nation states make for very good headlines, especially in the in, in the general media, in, in, the, in the mainstream press, the, the non-tech specific press, uh, and it certainly matters. But a lot of what nation states do is is very targeted. It doesn't really affect the average person any more than um, espionage between nations. Uh, uh, 
classical espionage between nations affects us. Like it's something that we should be concerned about from a political point of view. Maybe we should expect our politicians to respond in a certain way or maybe we shouldn't expect them to overreact. But it's not something that affects you or me in our day-to-day life or even in our work life. Uh, obviously, with a few exceptions, but for the average person, the average system administrator at a medium-sized company, that's not something they should be particularly worried about. And there's also the fact that most nation-state attackers, the way they operate isn't particularly different compared to what the more advanced criminal groups operate. So if you just focus on the criminal groups and you're able to fend them off reasonably well, then you're doing a pretty good job at keeping most nation-state attackers uh, out of your networks. Yeah, I, I almost get this sense sometimes that people will claim this attack could have been a nation state because, and my sense is that it's almost like that's a get out of jail free card. Like, you know, how, how could we have possibly defended ourselves against something as powerful as a nation state? I, I agree. And, and you know, it's true that if you're really up against uh, the most advanced nation state attackers, be they Russian, Chinese or American, you really do have a hard time. I mean, try fighting the most advanced NSA malware or Cozy Bear, which I believe, or Turla, which I think are the more advanced Russian uh, attack groups. You have a really hard time fighting them. But that's not something that most people should worry about. Now, I see, you know, when you walk around at, at a trade show, at a security trade show, um, you, you'll see many folks in their booths or, or say, will say things like, traditional antivirus isn't enough anymore. You're in the middle of all that. Where do we stand when it comes to uh, the place that antivirus has in the industry? What's the real story there? Okay, so there's two things to say about this. Firstly, antivirus for a long time has not been good enough to be just something that you that you use and, and don't have to worry about something. This was the case. It was probably the case maybe in the 1990s, but after that, uh, defense has always been multi-layered. You shouldn't overstate the importance of antivirus, uh, as in it's not something that you plug in and you don't have to worry about anything. At the same time, you shouldn't underestimate its importance either. When you say uh, when people say things like traditional antivirus isn't good enough anymore, they almost create a straw man, something called traditional antivirus, which is something mm. that hasn't existed for a long time. There is there is something called next-gen antivirus, and there are a number of subtle ways in which they differ from traditional antivirus. But a lot of the techniques that they, they apply, like a reliance on machine learning, a lot of automation, and a lot of other advanced techniques, uh, they're not that different in what traditional antivirus vendors do these days in their products. So one of the things that you all do there at Virus Bulletin is um, email security testing. Take us through what goes into that. So we've been doing this for, for about a decade, and we used to call it a spam filter test, uh, but no one calls it spam filter filters anymore. So we call it email security testing. And, and one thing that I've noticed um, is, is a change in uh, email-based threats uh, that is quite subtle. What I've noticed is that uh, there are uh, many threats these days that do a good job at bypassing email security products. And slightly ironically, they do that by, at least in part, by seriously reducing the volume. So traditionally, we've, we've thought of spam as something, as a problem of volume. And it, the idea has always been, well, almost all spam gets blocked, but a small percentage trickles through to the, to the end user. And if we just increase, or spam has just increased their volume, uh, then enough will trickle through to make it worth it. And actually, that's not true, because... 
we have uh, mitigated spam so much that uh, spam skills very badly. So you can send a million emails and maybe a thousand get through. But if you send 10 million spam emails, then maybe 2000 get through. So hmm. what we see, what I see and what others see is that there are a lot of malicious email campaigns, either with a malicious att attachment or with a malicious link that have much lower block rates by email security products, uh, but are also much smaller in volume. And these two are linked. So to give a concrete example, um, a few weeks ago, one random email uh, delivering Emotet, which is probably the, the, the best known, probably the most serious criminal threat out there at the moment, um, was missed by about half the products in our lab. But it was also the only email of that kind that we saw that day. And uh, obviously we see a small thing. There are probably thousands, probably tens of thousands of these emails of which we saw one. On that same day, we saw three and a half thousand emails of the same sextortion campaign. No single one of these three and a half thousand emails was missed by a single product. So it's been far more effective for the email that spammers to send their small campaign than for these millions of sextortion emails. And what is it about those low-volume emails that makes it so that they can get through? So most spam filters, most email security products, they, they are in some way responsive. So they have all sorts of sensors out there. And as soon as they detect new campaigns, they, they add detection for that in, in, in a subtle way. I'm not saying they just add hashes, but you know, IP addresses get blacklisted. So the contents get recognized, uh, links get, uh, domains and links get blacklisted. Obviously, you need to hit the sensors first. And with small campaigns of, of tens of thousands of emails, uh, you're not going to hit the sensors very quickly. You're not going to hit them very much. And maybe by the time uh, enough has hit the sensors, uh, the campaign is over. And what also happens is that a lot of these spam emails are sent from compromised accounts, which makes it very hard to send large volumes. I mean, if, if, if I hack your mail account at your ISP, um, I can probably send a few hundred emails through it before they notice, but I can't send tens of thousands of emails through it because your ISP mm. will block it. But these few hundred of emails, they're not going to be blocked based on the IP address because it's a legitimate mail server. They're not going to be based on the sender because your email address is genuine and it's it's linked to that mail server. Everything looks fine. Uh, maybe I use a link to a, to a compromised website. There are many websites that are compromised that are hosting malware or links to other websites that host malware. Uh, redirect, sorry, to other websites that host malware. That's what I see and that's how you stay under the radar as, as a spammer. Are there ways that they're automatically um, rapidly iterating the 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 mail that goes out so that there's there's a whole bunch of different um, variations? To some extent, I think what's mostly happened is that there are just a no large number of malicious actors all sending hmm. small volume campaigns. It's something funny that I, I discovered a, a few months ago. So most of these campaigns, uh, if, if you're a spammer, uh, if you want to spread say some malware say say you're uh, a beginning cyber criminal you haven't written your own malware but you bought something like azeroth or loki bot on the black market this mm -hmm. happens happens a lot uh, and you want to spread it and not to someone particularly you just want to get maybe a thousand infections and then work from there and, and monetize it in some way so what you do is you 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 buy access to some someone who has the infrastructure to send this spam you get access and you upload the, the attachment and you upload the which is attachment usually something that downloads the, the final malware and you upload the the email and you send that that's that's well known that that's how it's been happening for for years and especially if the volume is low then you can use compromised accounts maybe 
servers that registered for this purpose, which also means that they're not yet blacklisted. Uh, but what I saw uh, kind of accident a few a uh, few months ago that, that some spammer had made a mistake and they uploaded the wrong file. So as an attachment, we got a list of 25,000 email addresses. Hmm. Um, so I, I, I did some I did some research into the email addresses. I found they're all on the web. They're, so someone had probably generated this this uh, this list by scraping the web. There are various ways in which they could probably avoid spam traps, which are sometimes hidden on the web to, to attract this kind of scrapers. But also the number of, of t- a little over 25,000 is, is interesting because that, that's a kind of number that uh, keeps you under the radar. But, you know, even with a, with a 10% delivery rate, which, which is sort of the sort of thing that we see, uh, you, you get 2,500 people who get your email in their inbox. And, and, okay, maybe not all of them will open it. Some of them will open it and it will still, still be blocked later on. But you, it's quite likely that you get dozens, maybe a few hundred infections, and that's probably worth it. Yeah, it's remarkable to me how few spam emails really make it to my inbox, make make their way in front of me. It, it seems as though uh, behind the scenes, like the providers are, are doing a pretty good job of uh, keeping those out of sight. That's true. That's true. And uh, what they're especially good at is uh, is blocking the large volume campaigns. I mean, just by looking at what makes to your inbox, you don't realize that there's so much Viagra spam still going around, but really 99.9% is blocked. It's also the case that especially personal accounts probably don't get certain kind of spam. There's a lot of variation in what certain people uh, receive. So people who have uh, professional accounts, their work accounts are going to be getting different flavors of spam than they'd be sending to consumers. Yes, especially because consumers tend to use, uh, most consumers tend to use one of a few webmail providers. And in, in, in English-speaking countries, it's Gmail, uh, Outlook.com or, or variations thereof, and uh, Yahoo and AOL, which are the same now. In that list that I saw recently, uh, these were completely avoided. And that mm-hmm. makes sense as a spammer because if you start in- sending a lot of spam to Gmail, then because of, because of the volume, uh, Google is going to detect it more easily. Whereas if you spread it through a lot of different domains, and some of which actually do use Google, but still, it's uh, there are two things to say about this. First is, uh, spammers try to avoid the large webmail providers, at least if they're targeting, if they're having a small campaign, because uh, large webmail providers, they see a lot of these emails, so they have a harder time getting under the radar because they, they send a, see a lot of emails in your campaign. If 10% of your emails go to Gmail, well, then Gmail is going to notice that. Whereas if you spread them more evenly among many users, uh, providers, then you're staying on the radar better. And and secondly, mm. home users just aren't that, that interesting. And it's true that many people use Gmail, Live.com, Outlook.com, etc. for business purposes, but still, most of these users are home users. There's just a lot more to gain from an infection in uh, a corporate uh, environment, which, which can be sold on and, and which could... A single spam email... Uh, if you're unlucky as a business, could cost you a million dollars. I want to switch gears and uh, talk about threat intelligence, and I want to get your take. What part do you think threat intelligence plays in an organization's defenses? I think threat intelligence is, is, is very important. I mean, Virus Bulletin, I've jokingly said Virus Bulletin was the first threat intelligence company because when Virus Bulletin started almost 30 years ago, as a monthly bulletin, a printed bulletin in I think the first edition was July uh, 1989, so that's almost 30 years mm-hmm. ago. Uh, it included a list of all the known computer viruses and some IOCs, although they weren't called that, some 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 strings that, that help you detect them. 
So threat intelligence is very important. As a defender, you also, uh, especially if you're at a, at a small organization, there's also a lot of information out there. And a lot of threat intelligence isn't relevant or... So, so either it is not relevant at all because it, it concerns nation state attacks that your small law firm is, shouldn't be worried about, or it's relevant but it's already covered because your products are going to detect it. The products that you use are going to detect it anyway. It, it's sometimes a matter of finding what intelligence matters to you and, and what you should take action on and what you should just feed into your, your systems. So what are your recommendations uh, for organizations looking to better protect themselves? How do they, uh, how do they get started? I, th- I think the, the first recommendation I always give is, uh, and that, that's slightly counterintuitive, is, is focus on mitigation, not on uh, 100% detection, because that for most organizations, uh, mitigation is far more realistic, especially if you're smaller. Uh, just accept that, that yeah, something really bad may happen, but try and, and fend off most attacks. Find ways to fend off most attacks because that way you can keep the cost reasonable and that way you f- focus on the right thing. A uh, general recommendation, as I alluded to earlier, uh, don't underestimate security products. Don't overestimate them either. D- don't think, oh, d- they're not good enough. They only detect 90%. So why would I use them? Think of it, hey, that mitigates my problem by 90% so I can focus in another way on the other 10%, maybe a different kind of product, maybe in, in some other way. But also assume that something will get through. So assume that some of your emails, and I've said uh, quite a lot of these emails make it through to the end user. Someone will see these emails, someone will think they're genuine, will click the link, will download a Word document, will be tricked into enabling macros and doing all sorts of other things and some infection will happen. So try to think of that scenario. Don't spend all your effort stopping that scenario, but spend some serious time and resources on thinking, oh, this will happen. Someone in finance will get their PC infected with some data-stealing Trojan or with some malware like Emotet, which downloads other things. How can we make sure that this uh, that the threat is still contained? That it, it, it will cause damage. Yes, you can't stop that. But how can you make sure that this doesn't bankrupt the company? It seems to me that one of the challenges, particularly with smaller and medium-sized businesses, is figuring out what resources they need to apply to different levels of risk. Figuring out, uh, I guess, taking a risk-based approach. Yes, uh, th- that is that is very true. And and actually, here's one thing that I like to recommend, and it's it's almost a bit of a of a dirty word in the industry. Um, consider cyber insurance. I know it's it's a nascent industry. There's a lot of confusion about this there's been a story about some insurance that didn't pay out because not patch was a nation date attack but cyber insurance may be a good idea to cover the the last two percent of, of of your threat service that you just can't stop almost every attack that happens in the real world involves a human making a mistake and in a traditional insurance this usually means that you're not covered my home insurance uh, probably won't cover uh, theft if I leave the door wide open uh, won't mm. in, in uh, won't cover uh, the house burning down if I leave the gas on if I'm out of the house but the equivalent things do happen in in, in organizations and uh, that is how uh, threats happen so make sure that these things are covered in some way within reason of course where do you suppose we're headed when it comes to cybersecurity what do you think the future holds for us 
I think there will be job security for, for quite a long time to come. Um, <laughs> I, I do think that people will start accepting this as part of as part of the deal. You know, uh, threats will happen. You know, I mean, people have been stealing money from banks for centuries, and this will continue, and it will continue in a digital way. Banks haven't stopped functioning because people because bank robbery bank robberies take place. Uh, mm-hmm. They found many ways to mitigate robberies. They found, many, but still. People find ways to steal money from banks. They they blow up ATMs, etc. But this hasn't stopped the financial system from working. Uh, similarly, uh, nations have been spying on each other for centuries. Uh, now this happens in a digital way. This has some uh, interesting effects. There are differences that compared to old-fashioned espionage. But at the same time, I don't think it will stop international relations. Before I let you go, uh, I want to give you the opportunity to uh, talk a little bit about the conference that you put together, which is really quite something. Sure. So uh, it's one of the oldest security conferences in the world. It it goes back to 1991, and it has evolved in one of the main threat intelligence events in the world. It is uniquely international, so you really get people from all over the world. To give an example, uh, everyone talks about... uh, Chinese APTs, and we have people talking about Chinese APTs, but we also have people from China talking about foreign APTs targeting China, for example. So you you get a really good overview. It is a great networking event to meet other researchers, to meet the people who research these threats, and to build the context that are essential if you are a threat researcher or if you are doing threat intelligence in some way in, in, in a large organization. This is where you meet the people that matter. And it, it's a fun event, I think. And, and you know, we're kind of people. Uh, we, we do some, some fun on the side. And I recommend people come. Conference will take place in early October in London, which is a nice place. It'll still be in the EU uh, as a stand. <laughs> that's right. That's it's, right. It, yeah, that's the Virus Bulletin Conference, VB 2019, is, uh, is the name of the conference. But search Virus Bulletin Conference and uh, you'll find it. Our thanks to Martijn Grauten from Virus Bulletin for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Zane Picorni, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.